I learned something this week about one of the very first forms of public transportation in the United States. And I'm talking of the stagecoach. At most, a stagecoach could carry six people, including the driver and maybe someone sitting with the driver. Even though, as small as that was, they still had three different classes of tickets that you could purchase, first, second, and third class. Now, of course, that did not mean you got the seat of choice or it didn't guarantee that you would get a better meal than those who were riding along with you. Instead, it meant this. Now, the first class ticket meant that you were entitled, as the owner of that ticket, to remain in the stagecoach regardless of what conditions you faced along the way. In other words, if you got this ticket, when the stagecoach got stuck in the mud or was having a hard time going up a steep hill, you could stay inside the stagecoach the whole time. And so you could wear the nicest clothes you had and not worry about getting them dirty. Now, the second class ticket meant that you might have to get out of the stagecoach at a steep hill or when it was, but when it was stuck in the mud or not able to go up, you didn't have to dig out and you didn't have to, you didn't have to push up. So you could wear nice clothes, but you might want to wear your work boots or your mud boots and, and bring an umbrella with you. You probably see where this is going. Third class ticket meant that you better dress for the occasion and that when you came to the mud hole or you came to a steep hill, you had to get out and you had to dig out or you had to push up or whatever manual labor needed to be accomplished on the journey so that things could keep moving along. Now, you can imagine, you could probably just simply look inside the stagecoach and you could tell who bought what ticket, most likely. Now, in so many ways, this idea of the stagecoach, we see in our world in many ways. We can visually see the disparities and the difference that exists between first, second, third class realities in our world. And the gospel of Jesus is consistently and seemingly constantly up against this truth. We read stories like that of the, richest, the righteous man who gave a, a fine offering, but felt himself better than the widow who gave of her might. We hear stories of those who are very pious and, and well-versed in the scriptures, and they live by the Mosaic law, by every letter of the law plus some. Yet they seem to think that they were more important or closer to God in, than others were because of it. And these disparities in the Bible are just as easy to see as if you were looking at a stagecoach to see who bought what ticket. It's clear to us. But according to Jesus, we continue to miss the point about who is most important when it comes to the kingdom. In today's scripture passage is that one more story we see how we might overcome these disparities among us. Now, Jesus was consistently at dinner tables, wasn't he? He was at parties and, and wedding banquets, and he, in fact, he seemed to have something of a reputation. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, we see that Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he was, after all, famous for 
his very first miracle where he turned water into wine so that the wedding party could, could keep going as strong as it had been going. So Jesus finds himself at yet another dinner table. And this time, it seems as though he may even have one of the seats of honor. Now, physically speaking, to help see why this might be the case, dinners like this were usually arranged from the center of the room and out. There were usually three or four couches in a circle where folks could face each other, and on each couch, two to four people would sit, and they would lean into their left arm so they could eat with their right hand. I assume the serving table was either outside the circle or or servants brought food to those who were gathered together, the, the guest of honor. But being near the host chair was the most important place to be. You were considered to be very important if you, if you sat near the host in the further way, the less important. Scholars say that it's likely Jesus had one of those seats because of how Luke tells us this story. Yes, Jesus talks to the whole crowd when he tells his parable about the banquet and, and how folks should seat themselves. But then Luke tells us, interestingly, he turned to talk to the one who invited him individually. So as a result, what we see here is that Jesus has the ear of the most important person in the room. However, the most important person in the room also has Jesus's ear, which may be the point of this story and those who invite him. Because we know that many and most of the interaction Jesus has with the Pharisees were often of conflict. And so we have to wonder about their motivations of not only inviting Jesus in the first place, but giving him such a good seat at this gathering. Maybe they had heard from the synagogue leader that we read of last week. You might recall Jesus healed the woman on the Sabbath and, and really upset things. Maybe they heard from him and needed to talk to Jesus. Considering these are Pharisees and they having their deep scriptural knowledge and, and steeped in their traditions, maybe they'd heard Jesus teach before and they wanted to have a, a, a lively and rich theological debate with Jesus. Or maybe because usually their interactions were quite aggressive, threatening and, and public shaming were, were tactics that would not control Jesus. Maybe they decided, well, we're going to change tactics this time thinking maybe they could butter Jesus up. Possible. These were, after all, the power people among the religious and among the political as well. And this is how things get done amongst power folks in the world, then and today. You say if you welcome in the, the problem person into your inner circle, if you can affirm what you can about them, maybe they're more inclined to follow your lead, and, and maybe you can even offer for them to share in some of your authority. And boy, that sounds familiar to me. Jesus faced this before in the wilderness because it was the devil, in fact, who told Jesus when he was hungry, here, here's a meal. Let me give you some food. It was Satan in the wilderness who tempted him by asking, hey, I'll share my power with you if you'll kneel with me. And just as Jesus refused it then, we will see Jesus refusing it here as well. Because whatever motives they had that brought them 
to invite Jesus to this meal. It didn't take long for them to discover that Jesus plays by a whole different set of rules. You see, just prior to this, between verse 1 and 7, something happens. And what happens is a man with edema came to Jesus in that setting, in the middle of all of what was going on. And, and as he talked to Jesus, Jesus wanted to heal him. Now, he was obviously not invited to the party. And his showing up ignored all cultural codes and, and maybe religious codes as well. I wonder often if it wasn't a servant here, possible, but that's pure speculation. But it was the Sabbath as well. And Jesus knew full well that everyone sitting with him would have told him, no, it's not okay to heal him. It's the Sabbath. We've been here before. He knew when he asked them, and he did ask them, is it lawful for me to heal him? But interesting enough, interesting enough, what happens is they bite their tongues. They say nothing to Jesus. And so Jesus heals him anyway, and he reminds them all then that the scriptures say that if one of your farm animals is in distress on the Sabbath, you go and you take care of them. And likewise, we must take care of this man. And so he disarms them because he had used the law against them, and in all conversations continue to be silent. We have no reason to think that these Pharisees were, were awful or, or cruel. They were sages. They were spiritual leaders. We have every reason in the world to believe that they ask for and encourage humility among God's people. This was not a group of folks who lacked morals. But what we see in the Pharisees here and in other places is that sometimes even the best of us, are tempted to be motivated by social status, power, and connection. We know full well that what matters to God is that we remain humble. And we know full well that to do that, we must care for those that God wants us to care for. We know that. And yet, for as many examples as we see in the Hebrew and the Greek text, the Old and the New Testament, it seems we keep forgetting this. In short, Jesus is saying, be sure you know how to best be noticed when God shows up. And be sure you know that when God shows up, you show up that you're in the best light possible. In other words, Jesus is saying that when God comes to set things right among us, you want to be seen serving instead of seeking to be honored. And if you get caught doing otherwise, it's going to be kind of embarrassing, he's telling them. Now, on first read and and hearing this from Jesus, that sounds a little off to me. We might hear Jesus saying that we should concern ourselves primarily with making a good impression among others and among God. So look humble. (laughs) It might be what we hear. Jesus was a lot of things, but how to influence power people, person, he was not. Remember, These folks are are very well-versed and biblically principled people, and as many of us are. And so Jesus is appealing to what they already know about God. They already knew that God exalts the lowly, and they already knew that the foundational story of Israel bears this out. Those redeemed from their outsider status in the world. 
They already knew what God wants of us, and that's to be humble. They already knew that if we will be great in the kingdom of God, we must not try to stand taller than others, but to lower ourselves, even in our piety. Now, perhaps our own culture is not based on this system of honor and shame to the extent that it was in Jesus' day and in the Mediterranean, but we understand it. Even so, we can still place too high a value upon reputation. And it's not difficult, even for the best of us, to not worry about such things. It's not hard for us to think that we must always seek to climb the right ladders in this life to be successful. Someone once said that the world often looks like the children's game called Shoots and Ladders. Remember that game growing up? You spin your dial, you move your places, and what you hope for is to climb a ladder instead of fall down a chute. And the whole point of that game is upward mobility. This parable reminds us that that's not how the kingdom works. It's very different. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The world wants you and I to think that the better life always lies just above where we are. It wants us to keep striving for a little bit more than we, than we have. And our relationship with God's not immune to that either. We, we, we think we can do a little bit more for God to love us more. But we have to remember, we follow a Savior who was born in a cattle trough. We follow a Savior who marched in Jerusalem to show the world that he was Lord on a donkey. We have to see that one of his last acts to show the world what love is is wash dirty feet of disciples and say, if you want the world to see greatness, this is what you must do. And this is the person who sits at the right hand of God today. Well, after this teaching, things got a little bit more personal because Jesus moved from how to put a good banquet on or into the, the guest list. <laughs> he began to name names all of a sudden as they were talking. And it, what he's essentially saying is here, go ahead, have your, have your banquets. Set up your room for the guests. Let them eat. Let them fellowship. But be sure you're not only in inviting people who make you look better. Instead, invite those who in this world don't always get invited to important tables. He's teaching us here that he refuses to buy into any culture of status or, or honor or power. And as Emily Towns writes, Jesus wants us to understand that our all-too-human desire to be first or to seek the best seat in the house or at the party will not mark genuine participation in mercy and love. What will mark genuine participation in sharing God's mercy and love, though, is that our invitation list includes those Jesus wants us to include. We must be ready and willing and actively inviting those God wants us to invite. Those God wants to heal and forgive and lift up and redeem. And it's not hard for us to forget if we've been in the church a long time. But every one of us here are on Christ's guest list. 
Every one of us here today, because we recognize how much we need God's mercy and grace, are here because we needed it. Paul, once he became a disciple, said he was chief among sinners. He was the worst of sinners, in fact. But that was so he could let the world see how amazing God's grace was. And when we remember this, it works to our benefit. It puts us in the right light, you might say. So maybe we have in mind what our invitation might look like. Maybe we're beginning to, to form a list. Well, maybe I need to invite this kind of person or that kind of person. Hold on before we start making our list too quickly. Because I want to acknowledge that jumping to that step is a little awkward for me. Who are we to say needs God's grace and forgiveness and redemption more than the next person? Can we really know such things of strangers, of those we've yet to know yet? I don't think this is the kind of list Jesus wants us to make. I think this has more to do with recognizing who we relate to in the world in the first place. You see, when you and I have a party, invite folks over to such a things, we already know their names, we know who they are, but we invite them because we love them. Because we want to share table with them and because we know them. And so I do think this parable means for us to understand that maybe there's some folks in this world that we need to get to know better. To relate with them better. Yes, it is about who you know. But is it that who we know, does it look like Christ, folks? Let me try to explain this by sharing the story of someone named Dorothy Day. She was one of my favorite theologians, is one of my favorite theologians over the last century. Very pragmatic and, and pointed in her theology. And one of the things she said, the best thing that we can do with the best things in life is give them away. She said, God meant for things to be much easier than we often make them. And she said, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed too quickly. She was a very successful author and educator and writer. She published, I think, over 50 books and who knows how many essays and articles over her lifetime. But the story is told from a publisher who wanted to meet her about work that he wanted to commission her to do, I believe. And he had never met her in person. She had no idea who he was or what he looked like, although he knew her from pictures and because of her being well-read and well-known. So he arrived at the place he was to meet with her. And it happened to be in a community Christian center where they were feeding those in the community who were homeless. And it was obvious to him who Dorothy was because he what she looked like when he entered the room. And he could see her all the way across the room talking to a gentleman who, considering his demeanor and his attire, was likely from the homeless community. And when he entered the room, she looked up and she saw him, but then she turned right back to the conversation she was having. And it, put him, it set him back a little bit. He thought, well, I look a little different. She knows I'm coming. Surely she recognizes me for who I am as he entered the room. So he decided himself to walk over instead. And he gets to the table where she's talking to this gentleman and, and very pleasantly and, and unassumingly she looks up at him and says, Oh, are you here to see one of us? And he began to learn in that moment that what she had come to understand and, and to live out in her life was that she could relate with those who were poor and those who were not poor 
and not differentiating between the two, including her own importance among those who are important and among those who are poor. I do believe that this is what Jesus wants of us. I do believe that Christ wants us to get to know folks on a level that's not so easy to do in this world. They once wrote that we all want to change the world. We want to make it easier to feed and to clothe and to shelter people as God intends us to do that, and and we must. But we have to want more than that. In all our doing, in all our feeding, in all our clothing, in all our sheltering, we must love each other. We must love the neighbor. We must love one that we might call our enemy. We must love one that we call our friend. We must love the poor. We must love all equally as beloved children of God. We must learn to relate with each other as children of God, equally by God, as they did when she talked to this man having coffee. Howard Thurman once wrote that Jesus places a crown over all our heads for which the rest of our lives we keep trying to grow tall enough to wear. One of the ways we rise to meet the crown that Christ places above our head is to love and to make friends of strangers as Jesus did. And the more we do that, the more we live and understand as Dorothy Day did, once we overcome all temptations to think that we're holding the crowns over the heads of others, something changes. Christ holds that crown. And if we will follow his ways and love and relate as he did, one day that crown will sit on our heads. Thanks be to God. Amen.